Let's go ahead and pray and get into this topic. Uh, Father God, you are an amazing creator. Um, you are uh, a majestic uh, God. You are a grand designer. And when we look at your creation, we uh, behold you and your glory. Uh, help us to uh, better understand how uh, through these uh, tools uh, you've given us, we can come to know you better and know your creation better. And how we can better communicate this truth to our friends, to our neighbors, our coworkers. Uh, equip us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so uh, the first comment I'll make uh, is this, that um, this idea that science and, and theology, uh, you know, that science and God are kind of incompatible is actually a very modern idea. Uh, it's not an old persisting idea from you know centuries ago or anything like that. Because throughout history, uh, there were plenty of scientists, in fact, majority of scientists that really led the scientific revolution uh, who were devout followers of God, particularly Christianity. Right? These were devout Christians with a, 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 a a great love for science. Um, so I want to give you a couple examples to show you this. So uh, read you a couple of quotes from a few of these names that you might recognize. So there's uh, Nicolaus uh, Copernicus, the mathematician, astronomer from the 15th century. Right? Uh, he said this, To know the mighty works of God, to comprehend His wisdom and majesty and power, to appreciate in degree the wonderful workings of His laws, Surely all this must be a pleasing and acceptable mode of worship to the Most High, to whom ignorance cannot be more grateful than knowledge. So uh, he's saying for him, his investigation into the world, his scientific studies, is equivalent to knowing the mighty works of God, comprehending his wisdom, majesty, and power. Right, so for him, his love for God, love for science, go hand in hand. Uh, this biochemist, Melvin Calvin, right? He won the Nobel Prize in uh, Chemistry in 1961. He's the guy that developed the Calvin cycle. Right? Um, As I try to discern the origin of that conviction, I seem to find it a, in a basic find it in a basic notion enunciated first in the Western world by the ancient Hebrews, namely that the universe is governed by a single God and is not the product of the whims of many gods, each governing his own province according to his own laws. This monotheistic view seems to be the historical foundation for modern science. Right, so he's even going further than, than saying, you know, some general idea of God and, and, and science, but particularly monotheistic view of God makes more sense because um, there's sort of this mono-law that governs the universe, uh, a consistent, constant, universal law of nature that governs the universe that's consistent with uh, there being um, uh, a one God, uh, one creator, one designer. Joseph Taylor Jr., uh, he received the uh, Nobel Prize in Physics in 1993. He said, a scientific discovery is also a religious discovery. There is no conflict between science and religion. Our knowledge of God is made larger with every discovery we make about the world. Okay, and, and Taylor himself is a devout Christian. So again, uh, 
throughout history, throughout the centuries, even up until recent decades, the idea that science is somehow not compatible with faith in God is, it wasn't there. So this is a very modern invention. If you, uh, it's something that's been floating around since the new movement of new atheism in the past 10, 20 years through men like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens. Um, not at all a historical reality. Uh, there are these surveys that they will cite that uh, somehow show that scientists are mostly not believers. They're mostly uh, atheists or something like that. But what they found, about, found out about these surveys is that uh, the questions they ask on these surveys tend to be either too narrow or too broad in, in their questions about God. So, for example, they'll ask something like, do you believe in a personal God who speaks to people today? Right? And that could mean a thousand different things, right? Um, a lot of people can answer no, but still believe in God and some kind of a divine entity, right? Um, but that just simple no answer to that has usually been taken as like self-identifying as atheist, right? So um, that's not true. That's, that's a problem in how we survey the, the uh, scientific community today. Truth is there's, there's still many scientists who realize that science um, is not only compatible with faith, with religion, uh, but uh, science is actually not capable of answering a lot of life's questions that people are asking, and that we do have to turn to other disciplines to answer these questions. Not only theology, but also philosophy. Right? Um, so think about this, right? The statement itself. Science is all we need and all we'll ever need, right? Uh, we don't need religion. The scientific method and the scientific conclusions, scientific hypotheses are all we need. What's uh, basically wrong with that statement is that statement itself is not a scientific statement, so we shouldn't believe it, right? Science is all we need. We should only turn to science is not a scientific statement, so we shouldn't turn to it. We should reject it outright. So it's a very self-defeating claim to say we should only turn to science and only trust in scientific conclusions because that statement is not a scientific conclusion. Right? Uh, shoots itself in the foot. Uh, John Lennox is a mathematician at Oxford and he put it like this. The statement that only science can lead to truth is not itself deduced from science. It is not a scientific statement but rather a statement about science that is, it is a meta-scientific statement. Therefore, if scientism's basic principle is true, the statement expressing scientism must be false. Scientism refutes itself, hence it is incoherent. So what he means by scientism is this idea, you know, science is, science is all we have, all we need, all we'll ever need, that kind of thing. So, um, again, because as soon as you say science is all we need, You've gone beyond science, and that statement itself is not scientific. You have to reject that statement. It's self-defeating. Right? It's similar to what we said about doctrine and absolute truth. As soon as you say, you can't claim absolute truth, what are you doing? Claim You're absolute claiming truth. absolute truth. right? So as soon as you say, science is all we need, we don't need faith. You just made a faith statement, not a scientific statement. So it's self-defeating. 
So um, this idea that faith and science are somehow incompatible, one eliminates the other, it's a bad misconception, and it's a very modern misconception. All right? It's also a bad misconception because science and theology not only are not only exclu- not exclusive, okay, uh, but actually science can help us point us, can actually help uh, in, in pointing us to God, to God, to the creator of the universe. First, uh, science shows us the amazing elegance and beauty of God's creation. Uh, so Francis Collins, he's a director of the National Institute of Health. He was nominated by President um, uh, Barack Obama. And re- he was also a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, a brilliant guy who was uh, directing the Human Genome Project. Basically, it's the... I mean, I'm going to simplify this like crazy, but they were basically mapping out the human DNA uh, and literally laying out all the coding that's underneath uh, the DNA. And and I just want to read a quote from his writings um, to, to set the stage here for us. He says, In this modern era of cosmology, evolution, and the human genome, is there still the possibility of a richly satisfying harmony between the scientific and spiritual worldviews? I answer with a resounding yes. In my view, there is no conflict in being a rigorous scientist and a person who believes in a God who takes a personal interest in each one of us. Science's domain is to explore nature. God's domain is in the spiritual world, a realm not possible to explore with the tools and language of science. It must be examined with the heart, the mind, and the soul, and the mind must find a way to embrace both realms. As a director of the Human Genome Project, I have led a consortium of scientists to read out the 3.1 billion letters of the human genome, our own DNA instruction book. As a believer, I see DNA, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language, and the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. So this leads him to make this conclusion, that... Science is simply mankind trying to understand the greatness of God's design. Okay, so for someone as brilliant as Francis Collins, who's alive today still, uh, is something, for science, for him, is something that actually draws him closer to God, not farther away. When he looks at the 3.1 billion letters of the human genome, what he sees is not some mindless, random things that have mutated to form a random incoherent bunch of information, what he sees is coherent, life-giving information that's more complex than any supercomputer that we've invented. Um, And behind that, um, there is marvelous design. And behind that, there's marvelous designer. Uh, Here here are a few more ways that science and God or theology can go hand in hand. Uh, Paul Davies is a physicist, And he said this, People take it for granted that the physical world is both ordered and intelligible. The underlying order in nature, the laws of physics, are simply accepted as given, as brute facts. Nobody asks where they came from. However, even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith that the universe is not absurd, that there is a rational basis to physical existence manifested as law. Uh, law-like order in nature that is at least 
partly comprehensible to us. So science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. So what he's saying there is, when you look at the world, um, what you see is a very uh, understandable world, uh, one that operates with very consistent, permanent, universal uh, laws of nature. And when you try to, the thing is, you cannot try to use science to explain uh, the origins of those laws of nature because as soon as you try to do that, you're assuming the laws of nature. So it's similar to how people have tried to um, uh, talk about the laws of logic. You know, there's such a thing as laws of law of logic. Uh, and some, some philosophers, even gone, a very small number, have, have gone as far as to argue away uh, the laws of logic. But just think how that conversation would go, right? Uh, laws of logic aren't real. We can get rid of logic. Um, what's wrong with that? Okay, let's say, let's, let's say we do that. Let's say we get rid of laws of logic. Then we can keep it too. Because we got rid of logic. We can get rid of it and keep it at the same time. Right? Which doesn't make sense. So as, as soon as you start saying uh, any statement about log the law of logic, you're making a logical statement. And it's the same thing with science. As soon as you start approaching the laws behind science, you're not really, uh, uh, you're not really going beyond it. You're assuming it. You have to assume that these laws of nature are there, that these physical laws are governing the world, and then operate scientifically. So it's a faith position you have to take that these laws will never change, these laws will always be there. Um, and that's a brute fact that you just take by faith, not by evidence, not by any scientific means. Uh, here's another quote that's related to this from C.S. Lewis that take this, takes this even further. Okay, so listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say. Supposing there was no intelligence behind the universe, no creative mind. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Right? That, that makes sense, right? It is merely that when the atoms inside my skull happen for physical or chemical reasons, to arrange themselves in a certain way, this gives me as a byproduct the sensation I call thought. It's not a real thought, it's just a chemical reaction that makes you, th makes you think that you're thinking, but you're not really, it's just a chemical reaction in your brain. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? It's, it's like upsetting a milk jug and hoping that the way it splashes itself will give you a map of London. But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I cannot believe in thought. So I can never use thought to disbelieve God. Okay, so if atheism is true, if the natural world is all there is, uh, my brain is not designed for thinking true thoughts. My brain just, it's just something that happened to be evolved through random process of natural selection and mutation, right? Over billions and billions of years. It's, it may be fit for survival, but nothing about that says it's fit for truth. Fit for true thoughts, okay? Much less to say true thoughts about things beyond nature. So, just as we wouldn't jump on an airplane, let's say, that 
randomly formed itself in a junkyard because tornadoes blew by and just kind of <laughs> randomly formed it, you wouldn't fly that plane, right? Why would you then trust your brain if you think your brain was formed pretty much in the same way? Why would you trust anything your brain says? So if your brain says atheism is true, why believe that or anything at all? So as soon as you assume your thought is coherent, you're thinking true thoughts, you're thinking theological thoughts, you're thinking spiritual thoughts, you're assuming God already by faith. Okay? So here's another benefit that science gives us. Science can also help us eliminate false claims made by false religions. Okay? Um, have you thought about this as a Christian? That science can actually falsify variety of claims made by false religions? very helpful. Okay. Um, I think in evangelism, sometimes it's more effective to use scientific evidence or historical evidence when you, when you talk about other religions and other faiths, rather than just simply saying, you know, um, here's what I believe about the Bible. When, when someone's already rejecting the Bible as an authoritative source, and they challenge you on why do you believe this faith and not, not this other faith, science is a good good uh, tool to use. So, for example, uh, religions make claims about the natural world, right? And um, the cool thing about that is these claims about the natural world are empirical, as in you can test it, you can see it, you can examine it. Uh, so, for example, there's the view of the ancient Greek that, um, that the sky rests on the shoulders of Atlas, right? Or the, the ancient Indian religions that, says the, that say the world rests on the back of a giant turtle, right? Um, easily falsified, right? Um, uh, astronauts took some pics, right, in space, and and uh, and they're like, yep, no no giant turtle, okay. So this is one of those very, you know. Uh, classic examples we can turn to when it comes to these these ancient claims about um, the the galaxy and the and how the planets are are, are holding together and all that. Um, one of the most well known examples is also the, the you know the medieval church uh, condemning Galileo right for arguing that the Earth moves around the sun rather than you know the other way around rather than the sun move, uh, uh, the uh, uh, sun moving around the Earth. And that was based on their misinterpretation of biblical passages like, you know, Psalm, 31, uh, Psalm 30, verse 1, The Lord has established the world. It, has never, it shall never be moved. <laughs> it shall never be moved. Oh, and so that means uh, the earth isn't revolving around anything. The suns and, the, and all the stars are revolving around us, right? But, right, scientific evidence eventually falsified this, and, and the church learned its mistake, Right? And, and it was a mistake from a biblical point of view anyway. It was, that's just a wrong biblical interpretation of that passage. Um, another interesting example of science falsifying religious views is the claim you know, that a lot of Eastern religions make, like you know, Taoism or certain forms of Hinduism, that the world is divine and therefore eternal. The world is eternal. Um, and, and the discovery during, you know, just our century, right, uh, of the expansion of the universe, what that reveals is that 
the universe is actually not eternal, and all matter and energy, physical space and time, came into existence at a point in the finite past, before which there was no time, no space, no matter, no energy, nothing. Okay. So um, this is what we know as the Big Bang Theory, right? So if the universe came into being at the Big Bang, then the universe is finite. It's temporarily finite. It's not eternal. It can't be eternal. Right? So this rules out a lot of these sort of pantheistic religious claims about the, the eternal existence of the universe. In fact, it actually refuted a lot of uh, atheistic scientific <coughs> claims that the universe is all there, all there is, all there ever was, all there ever will be. Whereas the Bible has always been teaching that the universe had a beginning uh, since the beginning of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a beginning. Um, And and that teaching was ridiculed by pantheistic religions, atheistic scientists who believe the universe is (coughs) eternal, um, while the Bible made this claim consistently uh, long before, long before the Big Bang, okay? So uh, Robert Jastrow, he's a head of NASA's um, space studies, and he, he put it like this. The scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Okay. Like Genesis 1-1 has been there for right millennia, and then scientists make their way right through... Biology and astrology, cosmology, astrophysics, they get to the top, and what do they find in the beginning? The first three words of the Bible. Um, And this leads to another contribution science makes, and and that's confirming the kind of world that the Bible describes. It confirms for us the kind of world that we would expect to live in if it was created by an intelligent God because we live in an intelligible world. It's a knowable world. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a world filled with constants, with designs, full of information and, and fine-tuning. Fine-tuning. Um, it's just too fine-tuned to be without a design or intelligent mind. Uh, behind it. So here's a list of just that evidence of fine-tuning given by uh, an astrophysicist named Hugh Ross uh, out of University of Toronto. And uh, let me just go down the list. Not that I fully understand what this means, but I just, I'm just trying to give you the gist of it, okay? If the gravitational force is even slightly uh, larger, and, and we're talking like razor-thin differentials, okay, then the stars would burn up, whereas if it's sm- slightly smaller, the stars would freeze up. Either way, life would be impossible. Okay. If the electromagnetic force constant is even slightly larger or smaller, there will be insufficient chemical bonding, right, which is essential for life. If the rate of the universe's expansion is even slightly higher or slightly lower, there will be no galaxy formation, no star formation. If supernova eruptions were closer or, or slightly more frequent than they are, all life would be exterminated. Okay. And he goes on and on. And these are just four of his list of about 30 constants in the universe 
that must remain exactly the way it is. Exactly the way it is. Otherwise, the universe as we know it, life as we know it, would not be here. Okay. And that's the fine-tuning argument for uh, God's existence. There's a great line in the, in the movie Amadeus, uh, based on you know, Mozart's life, where, it says, uh, where Sarielli says, uh, if you displace one note in, in Mozart's symphony, the whole structure would fall. If you displace one note, the whole structure would fall. Right, that's how complete, that's how elegant, and that's how beautifully orchestrated Mozart's music is. Right? And think about the complexity of Mozart's symphonies then. Right? Put them all together. Let's say there are like, I don't know, thousands of pages of, of Mozart's symphonies. Um, it's a guess. Given their complexity, their beauty, their orchestration, would you say there's any chance that all those symphonies, all of Mozart's symphonies can somehow come together through billions, year, billions of years of uh, random mutation, natural selection, right? Just notes, ink, just get thrown onto pages and being formed together that way. Right? No one would argue that, right? No one would for a second believe that to be the case, right? Uh, what we would say is clearly there was a composer behind this, a composer with a brilliant mind, with a beautiful mind, who put these notes on these pages, right? Um, well, the, the single human brain alone contains more complexity, more beauty, more elegance than all of Mozart's symphonies combined, right? So think about, think about the complexity of the entire universe. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. For us to say simply, there was no intelligent cause behind all that. So, Alvin Planning, I put it like this. It's as if there are a large number of dials that have to be tuned to within extremely narrow limits for life to be possible in our universe. It is extremely unlikely that this should happen by chance, but much more likely that this should happen if there is such a person as God. Now, this is not to say, here, here's proof that God definitely exists. No, it's saying it's more likely than not, right, that he exists, right? We're talking probability, we're talking... If you're going to use science as an argument, as a tool, and, uh, um, and as an investigative means, if anything, it tells us it's more likely than not that God exists. So for a lot of scientists, uh, science is far from a refutation of God or a nullification of God. It's evidence that points to Him. Okay? It gives support to passages like this in the Bible, like Psalm 19. The heavens, and that means the skies, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Right? If the Bible is true, then we would expect to live in a world that is intelligible and knowable, that can be known through uh, scientific means. Whereas, apart from this, again, if you are embracing a strictly atheistic worldview, you don't even have a rational basis to think your brain, what your brain is thinking, are true thoughts. Right? Just as you wouldn't hop on a plane that was randomly formed at a junkyard over billions of years. You shouldn't trust your brain that was randomly formed over billions of years. 
you have no rational basis to trust it. Whereas if the Bible is true and we are created in God's image, who created a knowable world filled with knowledge, and God himself is a knowledgeable person and we are created in his image then, we have this correspondence between the world and our minds where the world becomes knowable to us. Again, these are things that a non-believer, an atheist, atheistic scientist would just simply hold on to as a brute fact, as a faith position. And they would just simply say, well, you, you kind of have to, it bottoms out somewhere, and you kind of have to assume some things at some point. So for them, uh, the universe is a brute fact. Scientific laws are a brute fact. Um, and, and in a sense, for, for some Christians, not all, some Christians, the Bible is a brute fact. God is a brute fact. And they should be okay with that. Okay. So, um, this is why John Lennox says, faith is a response to evidence, not a rejoicing in the absence of evidence. Meaning, like the psalm, like Psalm 19, in a sense, right, If you, I, I imagine David before writing the psalm, actually engage in, before engaging in theology, he actually engaged in something scientific. He observed the, the stars. He did something scientific first, and as a response to that, he responds with praise. He responds in faith. And so that's what Lennox means here. Faith is really not the absence of evidence. It's a response to evidence. It's a response to what we do perceive. Okay. So no, faith is not the absence of evidence. It's a response to evidence. Um, questions that you have written down that have not been addressed. Yep. I think the most famous one is uh, that they proved the uh, Egyptian plagues through science. Um, Wait, so that's what a non-believer would say? Right. They, they, they have Doesn't actually, that help the case? Of, I, no, I'm, I, yeah. I know. What okay. I'm saying is that's what a, a believer is like. A lot of believers, unbelievers say, well, how is God real if they prove that the plagues in Egypt, they scientifically prove uh-huh, uh-huh. the plagues in Egypt? And how oh, I see. That's happened. Oh, I see what you mean. So, yeah. so it's basically saying, and we don't believe it happened in one day, even though that's in Egyptian history. Uh-huh. Like, no, but we can prove that it happened. So, why? How could God? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So they're saying it's scientifically explainable. Explain, yeah. Right. So, uh, you don't have to posit sort of a theistic explanation mm-hmm. for something that's science. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a very common thing that's raised about a lot of other things. So uh, I, would, I would point them to something like we just talked about, the Big Bang. So uh, can a Christian believe that the Big Bang happened? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, God caused it. No, like the last few months, I've been like YouTubing, you know, like crazy, all, uh-huh. like, all of that. Yeah. And it's it's funny how they're starting to understand how the at least from Christian perspectives as well, yeah. how when you look at when the when the astro, astro, astrologers look at different universes, uh-huh. they're seeing how it's the same design. Mm. Every planet is a sphere. Mm. It, it it rotates around yeah. the sun. Yeah. And so when you zoom back to Earth, yeah, it's just to see the beauty. Yeah. Of the night sky. That's right, why it's so right. far away. Yeah. But even before that, our universe is designed to protect us. Right. So any 
asteroids or comets. Right, yeah. Never make That's it. the fine-tuning. Yeah, it will never make it to us right. past the gas yeah. giants. Right. We have and and the, the examples of fine-tuning is literally infinite. Yeah. Uh, you cannot exhaust the amount of fine-tuning there is in the universe for just so that we can be here. Exactly. And, and breathing and talking right now. It's, like it's everything incredible. is in place to protect yeah. human life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go back to I will go back to Amadeus. Yeah, if you displace one node, right, the whole structure will fall. Right. Uh, true for Mozart, true for the universe, because there's a composer behind both. Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Yeah. Yes, so, um, is creationism a wild, a valid ideology within Christianity? Yeah. Good question. So. Uh, the you know the question is about the Genesis account of creation, um, and I think I think this is one of those um, uh, non-essential things. Uh, meaning, you know, when we go over uh, in our membership course, we talk about in essentials we have to pursue unity, but in non-essentials we have to have liberty, and uh, the debate of you know whether Genesis is talking about creation creationism with young Earth or creationism with old Earth or is it evolution that's guided by God? That's a, that will fall under the non-essential category, and I think our church actually is a good pool of mixed <coughs> opinions on that, um, and so uh, it's okay if you take a literal six-day creation view uh, and a young Earth view. It's also okay. If you hold to the belief that uh, God guided the process of evolution and natural selection, and at some point in that process of evolution, he breathed his life, gave, endowed his image to a couple named Adam and Eve. And from there um, um, came a whole species of people that are now endowed with the Imago Dei. You can believe that. You can believe that. And, and I don't think it, it's really a, a stretch to believe, too much of a stretch to believe that, when, especially when you consider the fact that the word day, yom, in the Hebrew, doesn't just mean a literal 24-hour day. It actually can mean a period of time. So, um, and and I, don't, I don't think that uh, it's, it's easy to explain how there could have been a first, second, third day when before, before the sun and the moon were created to measure 24-hour days. So what was the time span before then? You know, it's hard to explain that. How did, we, how did people calculate hours before sun and moon existed? Um, so it's plausible. It's also plausible to say God created it all in six days with the appearance of age. Okay? If, I mean, if that works for you, I mean, that's, uh, you know. So um, uh, I mentioned Hugh Ross earlier, the astrophysicist. He's an old earth creationist. I mentioned Francis Collins. He's a theistic evolutionist. And they would consider each other brothers in Christ. I mean, so that's a non-essential. Uh, and if you're dealing with someone who's very adamant about evolution being true, creationism being wrong, I would just not pick that debate, pick that fight, because, okay, let's move on. What about Jesus? And just, you know, <laughs> move on to something more essential, because no one's going to hell for believing in evolution. How do you approach condescending non-believers? Condescending non-believers, yeah. Or do you even approach them? Yeah, um, that's, that's a good question. So um, let me try to limit it to encounters maybe related to this topic, right? 
Um, I think the best thing you can do for someone who's trying to be humiliating or condescending with a topic like this would be to just be equipped with a with a kind with a no with a wise rational answer and offer that with kindness uh, especially if there's an audience because then you're really witnessing to not only the truth of the Bible but the heart of the Bible right not only the truth of God but the grace of God so I think the best thing you can do is to be equipped but even if you're not equipped uh, with to give an answer that you know might satisfy that question at least be be humble and kind because um, I think that that will that will remain with them I think they'll walk away not feeling like they won but feeling more angry more entitled and actually that's a that's actually how uh, uh, counselors uh, uh, help people deal with bullies right? there are there are things that you can say that disarm them uh, and if they choose to uh, uh, remain in this in the state they are in the with the attitude they have that's their that's their fault and it's it's uh it, it, it in a lot of ways it weakens the um it disarms the bully when you when you're equipped with certain tools so um that's just a very general answer um, i'm just limiting it to something like this if somebody throws you like a question about well don't you know science la 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 and it's ignorant to believe that god did this and that just be ready with a couple of answers to give, um, um, and and yeah, and then be be okay with just giving them that answer in kindness and walking away. Yeah. Uh, this one is <clears throat> is scattered, not because of me, but because okay. of how things are growing. Okay. But uh, genetics. Okay. And so, I think the social sciences are hijacking that. And so, more so in the form of gender. Mm-hmm. And so now, because of like logic is being taken away from the science aspect, mm. is it still a science? Because when you're trying to debate with science and God, with science and religion, if there's the logic taken out of it, of yeah. the science part, now it's like a, it's like a, yeah. you can't yeah. even have a healthy right. debate there. So, so that's where you, you're, Definitely um, in more, you know, maybe culturally speaking, controversial and yeah. emotional waters, right? So when you when you deal with something like that, I would want to find a way to not go all the way into that pool, but okay. just kind of yeah. maybe I don't know, I'll dip my toe just to engage that person. But I would I would be as distant as possible again because it's a non-essential in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, it's a non-essential. So I might say something like, "Hey, so." Yeah, the Bible teaches us that God created humanity, male and female. Uh, but that's also before the fall. And as a result of sin, that, that distinction in our minds or in our bodies may be at times unclear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would expect that to be the case right. if Genesis 3 is true, that sin entered the world and disrupted nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time... Uh, I think I would also see in God's design a clear distinction between male and female. And as far as science goes, we do see a very clear, um, at least in, in our chromosomes or whatnot, uh, 90, 99.9% of us are distinctly male or female in our genetic makeup. So 
is that the kind of world we would expect if if it's true that we're created male and female? I think so. Right. You know, how you want to use genetics to appease your cultural standards and whatnot, that's not I'm not interested in that. Right. I'm interested in, you know, what the Bible is saying and especially the claims of Jesus whether he's true. And so, you know, as long as there's no outright contradiction between scripture and science. In fact, there's a lot of consistency. Let's move on to the bigger topics. Right. I would just try to navigate. Yeah, yeah, because it's just yeah, not, right. and you can go on for hours with things like that because it's just emotionally it's very invested debate. Right. And, and they are getting things from TV, from, the, from social media that's rallying them up about it. Yeah. That it's just not, it, it doesn't, it, doesn't uh, it distracts from the main thing. So I would just find um, a way to try to get on the main point, because I think that's what the Holy Spirit would want to do. Right. Yeah. yeah, Alec, last question. Um, speaking of contradictory science and scripture, yeah. say you're having a conversation with a non-Christian, yeah. or even a Christian, yeah. and they bring up the discussion of dinosaurs, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, wouldn't that prehistoric timeline contradict God's creation of the world? Or... You no, said, that would just fall like under... The Big Bang Theory and evolution yeah. is under God's creation and guidance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would the creation of dinosaurs still be considered under that? Yeah, I, so that would fall under theistic evolution. Yeah, and again, uh, a lot of scientists who are Christians hold that view, and it's totally fine. No, I think he's talking about the timeline at which... Well, I'm also just talking about the creation of dinosaurs. Because uh-huh. there is that, that debate between whether they're real or not, you know. Yeah. So, so, so that depends, right? So if you're a creationist, you will hold a certain view. Uh, and if you're an evolutionist, you hold another view. And I'm saying they're Christians who hold either view that, and they're members of our church. Is there, um, isn't there like a popular... In theology, a popular belief that um, basically there's a time gap between verse two and verse is it verse two and three of Genesis one, where it's like God created the heavens and the earth. Are you? Are you I think you're. You might be talking about the, the old Earth creation view. That's old, okay. Old Earth gotcha. creationism. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Um, let me let me close us in prayer. Uh, Father, uh, when we just uh, marvel at your creation, um, God, we are filled with awe. And I pray along with that awe that we would also be able to surrender uh, to you. Just be humbled before you. Give control back to you. Um, surrender our, our selfish ambitions before you. And understand that you have such a grander design for this world and for our lives. And help us to just seek out what that is and to play that little small role that you have created us to play. Um, Rather than asking you to come to us and revolve around us and center yourself around us, may we be uh, the earth that revolves around your son. Uh, Let us, Lord, surrender to you and and follow you and serve you and worship you for how great you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's go to worship.